Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian, coming to you from the first day of the Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show here in Washington, D.C. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Later in the program, an update on General Motors Defense, Infantry Squad Vehicle, and an update on the company's strategy to grow its defense business and key takeaways from this first day at AUSA. But first, joining us now is Dana Maynard, who is uh, the president of uh, L3 Harris's communications business, one of the world's uh, leading uh, communications systems uh, and architectures uh, providers. Uh, Dana, great to see you. Three three in-person shows in a row, Navy, AFA, and here we are at AUSA. Good to be out again, isn't it, Vago? It's great to have some time to be with you today. Uh, An absolute pleasure. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fink Antieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And Rafael USA is sponsoring our coverage here at AUSA. It's been uh, almost two years since the merger was announced between L3 and Harris. Now the two companies uh, together. Uh, now you're on your second CEO. Chris Kubasic has taken, uh, taken the helm. Um, You guys have won uh, a number of major contracts. That is the synergy that everybody was talking about in bringing these two uh, companies together. Uh, The low-band Navy um, uh, electronic warfare uh, program was one of them. Obviously, that's being protested now uh, by by Northrop Grumman. Talk to us a little bit about where you guys are on the merger integration, uh, work that's to be done, but more importantly, what are the kind of opportunities and avenues this opens for you guys? Well, thanks for the question, Vago. It's great. We've made tremendous progress over the last two years. I, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, on the front lines of the business, it seems like uh, the integration's been done for a while. We're operating as one integrated team. I think, uh, you know, nowhere more so than in the communication systems business that was uh, half L3 and half Harris. And, you know, it's allowed us to bring together synergies across the board. If you look at some of the recent wins that we've had in space with Missile Defense Agency and the Space Force and Electronic Warfare, we've been able to bring together the best of breed of businesses that are in each of the different segments of L3 Harris and really create new solutions that neither company could have individually before. If I look at what we're doing in communications, we're bringing the tremendous resilient airborne communications capability from our broadband communication systems business, legacy L3 business out in Salt Lake, combine that with um, our ground tactical communications business, very strong. We've integrated our night vision business and now we're networking the soldier so you can exfiltrate and infiltrate imagery and information onto the next generation EMEGB night vision goggle system and have that connectivity. We're even doing radios based on some of that work for IVAS as well. So you're many, many examples really across the entire portfolio, whether it's in space, it's the airborne domain, the maritime domain, or the ground domain that, you know, appropriately here that we're talking about at AUSA, where we're providing more resilient networks, more capable connectivity, more integrated systems, and the new company has the scale and the ability to go do that that neither company had before and I think we're really shaking up the industry. Um, What are uh, some of the other major competitions you guys are setting your sights on? I mean again this was uh, to bring some of the broader architectural capabilities that L3 had with um, the the hardware expertise. It's not that you didn't have it on the network side but certainly the two companies coming together 
gave that sort of top to bottom approach. What are some of the major things you guys are, are looking that go beyond, for example, project convergence over, over, over match? I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about JADC2, which is obviously one of the bigger things. Obviously, as everybody knows, you guys sponsor our JADC2 coverage as, as well. But what are some of the, the bigger, higher food chain um, contracts that you guys are going to be pursuing with this capability? Well, you're seeing us pursue mission systems work on, on FARA and FLORA. We're on one of the teams for OMFV. Uh, we're bidding on TLS Echelon's above brigade uh, as well. We're combining signals intelligence capability along with some of the electronic tech capability that we have in the communication systems business. You've seen us take on major wins in the maritime domain, you know, uh, undersea autonomous vessels, you know, autonomous surface vessels. Um, some of the additional platform integration, building on the work that we've done on Rivet Join and Compass Call, but now bringing in you know much more capability from the different parts of the company, whether it's enhanced uh, electronic warfare, signals intelligence, communications. Uh, I'd say in space, you'll see it in particular where we've brought together capabilities across all of the different businesses. Uh, you know, we're in our space prime. We're actually providing the complete satellite as opposed to you know a mission payload on that. Also, some of the next generation aircraft. It's a little harder to talk about those, but we're bringing together, you know, capabilities and advanced apertures, multifunction, open architecture systems, being able to integrate all of the communications, SIGINT, EWN, processing capability into a single um, multifunction processor. Um, you, you know, uh, one of the um, well, most important uh, questions that you and I have been talking about uh, for some time is speed. Um, and what speed looks like and, and how do you drive it. Uh, we heard from Secretary Kendall about the importance of speed, uh, that we're out of time and we need to be uh, changing. Um, you guys demonstrated that capability as indeed so many companies in this hall did during the course of the Iran, uh, excuse me, the Iraq and Afghanistan wars. And we heard a call for speed from uh, Secretary Warmoth uh, as well today. From your standpoint, what is, what is the key to moving faster, uh, and oftentimes, and it's good that Secretary Hicks is changing the view and not using the word legacy, is talking about irrelevant and irrelevant, because actually a, an existing system might actually be a faster solution to your problem, for example, than developing something uh, entirely new. What's, what's the right way for this leadership team to be thinking about speed and executing at speed and making some of these trade-offs from your perspective as somebody who has hundreds of thousands of radios, for example, that are in the inventory already? You know, I think the key to speed is how do you get capability in the warfighter's hands faster? There's a lot of experimentation that's been going on, and you've heard Secretary Kendall maybe question some of the value of experimentation for experimentation's sake. You know, it's how do you get that relevant capability in the hands of a soldier, sailor, airman, marine? You know, we've done a lot of that through a commercial business model in parts of our business, like the tactical radio market and in night vision, where you really move at the speed of the market. So you have to invest ahead of what you perceive. Uh, potential need is and you have to be really close to the customer. For the government it's about understanding what the warfighter really needs and then working cooperatively with industry to get that in their hands. You know we've seen progress with things like other uh, like OTAs and some of the accelerated transaction authorities. Those have worked I think well where the government has you know had in mind what the ultimate vision of that is. Um, there are also you know great things like you mentioned next generation uh, jammer low band where they actually 
did a demonstration of an existing technology contract to kind of working very closely with the industry, you know, iron out some of the issues, understand what the art of the possible was, reduce risk, and then go to contract. So, you know, speed in my mind is all about how do you actually get it into the hands of the warfighter and not get caught up in a multi-year bureaucratic cycle of, you know, changing requirements, redefining requirements. And so we've shown you can do that. I think in many ways, uh, DOD has looked at, you know, commercial industry and small companies as the way to do that. And certainly there are benefits to that. But I think there are those of us in industry, the established defense industry, that have shown the ability to do that. You know, at L3 Harris, you know, Chris has coined this term, trusted disruptor. That's the way we like to look at ourselves, that, you know, we are an agile company. We bring some of the fast moving capability that you referenced, but we also bring it within the scale that can solve relevant problems for the DOD. And in that way, I think we're disrupting some of the traditional paradigms of the defense industry that are defined requirements, take a long time to evaluate capability, redefine requirements, and then on a purely programmatic schedule, deliver a capability to the warfighter. And, and, and how much, I mean, you know, when people talk about the speed uh, question, to x like how much can we cut from our existing approaches uh, because during Iraq and Afghanistan I mean you guys were spinning out capability especially on the radio and the communication side of things with astonishing speed um, everybody was responding to that how much faster can we go on a steady state basis and what do you think some of are the mechanical things that folks have to bear in mind in order to be able to do that I mean obviously protests and the legal process and contracting is a piece of this but ultimately from a technological standpoint we could move significantly faster than we're moving. Yeah, I think, you know, consistency of a buy signal in a market, you know, industry will invest as we have, you know, and consistently have with this commercial business model. But for industry to make that decision, you have to be relatively certain that at the end of the day, there's going to be an acquisition. You may win or you may lose, but you've got to know the market's going to be there. So I think consistency of requirements, consistency of the acquisition process, knowing that at the end of the day, the development and the industry's investment is going to result in a program. I think where that falls apart is where requirements change consistently. You sort of get to the altar, but but bolt, and we've seen that in some of the programs that haven't gone forward. So it's trying to get the benefits of the market. You have to create that market, and the consistency of buying practices and following through on intended acquisitions, I think, are key. Um, uh, I, I have a uh, experimentation question, actually, for you, because, uh, you know, during the uh, network integration evaluations, you guys were investing in capability. Um, your predecessor in the business, uh, General Moran used to raise this all the time. We're yeah. willing to do this as long as it's not a road, it, 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 unless it's a road to nowhere. Yeah. And unfortunately, the the effort um, was a lot of experimentation, was a lot of thoughtful stuff. Um, you guys were willing to make the investment to help the Army learn, but there wasn't a lot at the end of it, yeah. and you guys spent an, an awful lot of money in each one of those exercises. Um, what's What's the right way for the customer to approach this? Because ultimately, um, you guys do invest a lot and probably a lot more than some of the other companies uh, in your league because you do have a lot of commercial uh, genes in there. Um, ultimately, what's the right way to, to do this in, in sort of pushing the ball forward and not actually having science projects that don't put capability in the hands of warfighters. Yeah, I think the Army has done a great job with that, with the approach to frequent soldier touch points and now project convergence. You know, we've made a lot of progress since the NIE days and now with the HMS um, uh, man pack and leader radio being in full rate production, the integration that's gone on with the integrated tactical network. And again, I think those frequent soldier touch points that give industry the opportunity to see real time 
firsthand the soldiers like it do they not like it is it performing according to requirement as opposed to some more exhaustive evaluation process so we've all learned from that we've been able to adapt to that I think the capabilities that we're delivering now are much better than they were before that kind of iterative process at the same time they're closely tied to the programs of record so it's not experimentation for the sake of experimentation it's experimentation to inform progress on the program of record and I think the Army's done a great job on that if I look at uh, the integrated tactical network specifically if I look at the recent full rate production decisions and acquisitions on the HMS Manpack and leader radio if I look at what's going on in EMEGB you know those soldier touch points that inform the programs of record but keep the programs of record moving forward at pace uh, and the uh, enhanced you were talking about the enhanced night vision um, certainly a very important program for the Army um, <laughs> The most important program for DOD, if you listen to the rhetoric, is the Joint All-Domain Command and Control System. Um, each one of the services has their own approach. The Navy has overmatch. Uh, we discussed that at uh, the Navy League yeah. show. The uh, Air Force has uh, the Advanced Battle Management System. We talked to Lieutenant General Q Hynote, and you and I had a, mm -hmm. a conversation about that as well. Uh, and here is obviously uh, Project Convergence, which is the Army's uh, major uh, initiative. It looks like the administration is taking a step back, hitting the reset button. Let's reconsider what it is we want to do. You know, what's the problem we're trying mm -hmm. to solve here? It is a combat cloud. We have a huge number of uh, legacy radios. You guys manufactured an awful lot of those radios, and and so, you know, you, you can't just wave a magic wand and and adopt this. In in some cases, though, you've said you can also kind of overthink the problem, and this can actually be executed more easily. From your standpoint, what's the advice uh, to get this right? given that war game after war game, as John Hyten, the vice, outgoing vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff has said, this capability becomes increasingly important with a high-end warfighter. What are, what are some things to bear in mind, how to move fast, how to do this right from your standpoint? Because there are folks who are putting, for example, speed over security, which is also kind of a problematic uh, uh, theme. Well, it'd probably be presumptuous of me to offer advice, but I can maybe offer a perspective on it. You know, as you mentioned, Vago, each of the services is in a little bit different area where they are bringing together their components of JADC2. I don't think anybody would doubt it's absolutely imperative to have a network that's interoperable, that's resilient, that's secure, that connects, you know, the sensors and shooters and an increasing number of autonomous sensors that we're going to have going forward if we're going to address the threat. You know, that threat's going to involve manned and unmanned teaming, you know, multiple generations of, of airborne platforms, ground platforms, surface and undersea platforms, they're all going to have to be networked together so that we can bring the fires to bear based on the input of all of those sensors. There's a strong desire that, you know, given the complexity of the problem, those decisions will be enabled increasingly by artificial intelligence and machine language. And at the heart of that, you need this resilient, secure network. I think the Army's made tremendous progress. Project Convergence is, I think, a series of exercises that test the technology it tests the art of the possible. It stresses how the network and all the other different technologies are going to work in real-world potential combat scenarios. But then it comes back and it informs the uh, programs of record with the input from the cross-functional teams. And so I think that's a, a virtuous cycle of how do you experiment, how do you go test a tough problem, but then how do you bring it back into the programs. That last part's absolutely key. If you're not acquiring, you're not actually getting the capability in the soldier's hands, then, then it's an exercise.
is, and then come back to maybe the, the NIE analogy. So I think the Army's had a you know great job with a joint board. They've got Air Force, Navy, Marine folks on their board advising them and using PC, you know, project convergence as the means to inform the development of their key programs and their major priorities. Navy starting to fund programs. We're working closely with them, and again, I think uh, you know focus on resiliency. Uh, you mentioned Secretary Kendall maybe rethinking a little bit what's the problem ABMS is trying to solve. And I think ABMS is a big umbrella the Air Force has tried to bring together. The key will be how does that result in specific programs. We're on a couple of those programs now. There's a lot of potential where that can go. And then in the end, I think it's going to be how do you stitch all that together and then at a joint level, how do they all play together so that you meet the promise of what everybody's looking for for JADC2. What's, what's a realistic executable deadline for this? I mean, do you think this is a five-year endeavor? Is it a 10-year endeavor? And, and, and you know, there are folks who are talking about sort of starting from scratch, and that's almost a fool's errand yeah. at this point, right? I mean, so how, what's, what's a reasonable interval to do something? Because you're talking about a secure cloud network that's highly bandwidth dependent. Not everybody has access to that bandwidth. I mean, for example, if you're an army unit in a, in a, in a valley, you don't have access to the bandwidth, for example, that an airborne or a naval unit had. I mean, how do we need to think about that part of it? And what's, what's, the, what's the time scale? Is this a 30-year endeavor, five-year endeavor, or is there a magic is there, is there a silver bullet here that can get us there? Well, I tend to not think of it as a discrete event that's going to have a firm deadline, but but rather a continuum. You know, there's a lot of progress that's been made. You know, the ITN and the Army is a huge step forward, an integrated tactical network which will offer connectivity out across all the different echelons of the Army, right to the edge of the tactical soldier, with, a, you know, a secure mobile ad hoc network, multi-channel radios that are capable of multiple different waveforms, you know, a very wide range of interoperability that the Army's never had before. For. That's a great foundation to build on. You know, the Air Force is piecing together different systems like that. The Navy's got a hard strategy around where they want to go with the fleet. And so I don't think there'll be a time where we say, you know, JADC2 is here, it's a 10-year away, 20-year away. I think we're going to make incremental progress and then tie those programs together so you ultimately get this JADC2 network. Daniel, thanks very much for joining us. It's always a pleasure uh, talking to you. Uh, already looking forward to our next interaction and hope you have a great AUSA. Thank you so much, Vago. Always great to talk with you, and I hope General Ferrari passes a favorable review on our discussion today. And a word from our sponsors. Our technology coverage is sponsored by General Motors Defense, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of Joint All Domain Command and Control. And joining us today is Steve Dumont, the president of General Motors Defense, which sponsors our monthly technology report and technology coverage overall. Steve, welcome to the program. Hey, Vago, thank you. It's it's really great to be with you here today. Uh, an absolute uh, pleasure. Can't imagine an AUSA uh, without talking to you guys. Uh, it's been a tradition over the years, and I'm glad to be continuing it. Uh, and congratulations on hiring uh, a retired United States Army Lieutenant General J.D. Johnson, uh, certainly a, a great soldier and great leader, your former Raytheon colleague, uh, to join your team to lead your uh, business development efforts. Yeah, Vago, thanks. I mean, I, I can't, uh, I couldn't be more excited about having JD join my team. Uh, as a member of the General Motors Defense Leadership Team, he's going to make a huge impact. I don't think I've worked with anyone in my military or defense industry career who brings as much passion about our mission as JD does. So it's, uh, he's a great add to the team, and we're happy to have him. 
and, and certainly an innovative thinker leading JIDO, uh, uh, the Joint uh, Explosive uh, Improvised Device uh, uh, Agency, uh, you know, was somebody who had tremendous amounts of uh, experience in sort of driving a ball forward uh, and, and being able to adapt quickly on the fly. Uh, it's obviously AUSA, and it's about five months since you guys opened your infantry squad vehicle production line in Charlotte, North Carolina. It was great to be there. It was even more fun to drive uh, what were some pretty amazing uh, vehicles. Uh, you guys are in low rate production. Obviously, you guys are going to grow to that 14 uh, vehicle a month uh, target. Where are you on the IFV contract? And, and you've taken the opportunity at this show to roll out new IFV variants. Bring us up to speed on where you are on the program and where you want to take it and where you hope the army will go. Yeah. Um, so Vago, as you know, the infantry squad vehicle or ISV is our, was GM defense's first pursuit and was subsequently our first competitive award. We're really excited about it. Uh, we're now actively in production, our, our, our low rate initial production of that vehicle on a path to build out the initial 649 vehicles. We're really excited as you, as you have seen and have driven. It's a light, agile, uh, nine infantry squad uh, troop transporter designed for all terrain and to support the, the mission of the Airborne Infantry Brigade Combat Team. So we're really excited to be building that now. As you said, we're in active production at our Concord, North Carolina um, production facility. We built that facility in 90 days from, uh, uh, from, from uh, you know, a hall, uh, an empty building to actively producing the Army's newest uh, ground mobility resource. So just an example of how General Motors defense can leverage the world-class manufacturing, the scale, and the speed of one of the world's largest manufacturing companies, General Motors. So we're excited to be building it. We're getting great feedback from the soldiers who have had the opportunity to evaluate it through the initial operational test and evaluation process. Uh, and it's, uh, it's moving towards fielding with the Army uh, in, uh, in the upcoming months. So we're excited about that. And uh, talk to us a little bit about the new variants uh, you guys are proposing. Yeah, so what we're what we're showing here at AUSA and what we're excited to highlight is, you know, based on our um, the work that we've been doing with with soldiers. I mean, what I'll tell you is a big focus of mine is getting down to the to the, you know, to the soldiers who actually um, use the equipment and, and get their feedback. These soldier touch points are absolutely essential for us to build the best capability for the warfighter. So based on that feedback, we're, we're here highlighting variant, which we call our ISV-5 heavy gun carrier. The five is a distinction for five seat instead of a nine seat variant, uh, but it is, it is uh, up gunned. It has a 46 uh, inch standard army gun ring. We have it mounted with a 50 cal. Uh, we have uh, 240Bs uh, weapons, uh, uh, squad automatic weapons mounted in the door. So think about this as that vehicle that could be used to provide some organic uh, uh, armed escort to unmanned vehicles. It could be used for uh, rather uh, uh, unweaponized vehicles, or it can be used as well for soft forces. And we've had a lot of discussion with our special operations forces and what their needs are. So this is a vehicle that could, again, bring that speed and agility, but also carry some firepower. So we're excited about it. It looks great. We'd love to have people at the show here come by and see it. It's uh, it's a 
I'm really excited about it. We also have in the booth another variant, which is our all-electric military concept vehicle. So we took an ISV, one of our early demo vehicles. We took the internal combustion engine out. We put in a electric motor. We did this in a in a number of weeks, uh, and and now we have a vehicle that's you know brings all the tactical relevance of acoustically extremely low signature. You, you know, it, it's it's silent. It's from a thermal signature standpoint, it's very difficult to see under infrared imaging systems and targeting systems. Uh, and it's also a, a step down the path towards uh, electrification of tactical vehicles. So we've got some great things to at the show here and we're ex- really, really excited about it. Um, and I should point out, um, drove that vehicle absolutely terrific and a testament to the partnership you guys have with Hendrick Motorsports right up there, uh, right up right up the road. Um, your parent company, uh, Steve, is investing has invested tens of billions of dollars in electric fuel cell and hybrid technologies over many decades. Uh, under Mary Barrow's uh, charge, you guys are investing another $12 billion uh, in new ge- generation electric vehicles for commercial and consumer uh, applications. Indeed, she moved up her deadline to get rid of uh, internal combustion engines from the product line, I think, to 2030. Um, Obviously, the primary focus is on commercial vehicles, but what does this mean in terms of GM defense and your agenda and pursuits? Because you guys are looking to electrify everything from flight line power uh, to um, auxiliary, uh, you know, uh, electrical sources aboard submarines. Walk us through some of the other pursuits because you guys are about, uh, you know, ground vehicles, but you're also about a lot of other technology areas and power applications. Yeah, Vago, great, uh, great question because it's very relevant to something that I think is a true discriminating aspect of General Motors defense. So I was with our CEO, uh, Mary, and, and the, uh, the senior leadership team for the past two days uh, as we engaged with uh, some of our institutional investors to tell our story about future growth. And it's a, it's a great story and it's backed by a significant investment. And I'll tell you, it's, it's truly visionary when you, when you look at you know, the need for this transformation. And I think it's, it's very clear to me that General Motors is leading the transformation in the commercial automotive industry towards a more electric, a more autonomous and a more connected future. Well, as you know, in our defense and government market, there's a similar interest in making that transition. And it might be for different reasons than, than in the commercial automotive industry, but all the same uh, intent is there. So what, what that means is General Motors defense is exceptionally well positioned to truly lead this transformation in the government and defense sector because of the, the significant investment that General Motors is making in the underpinning technology that will fuel this transformation. So, you know, we're putting a lot of focus on this, but we're doing it from, you know, viewing it through the lens of the warfighter and, and through the lens of our, you know, defense and government customers to understand you know, how, how they want to progress on this journey. I think you, you talked about you know, new opportunities for us to demonstrate electrification as a viable tactical uh, power source. The Army's electric light reconnaissance vehicle is a program that's in development and, and GM Defense is working very closely with the Army to, to understand their requirements and frankly, to help, help identify what's in the realm of possible. And we do this by building demonstration vehicles like the, the all electric military concept vehicle and allowing the soldiers and the warfighters to actually get in the vehicle, drive it, give us feedback. We make modifications and iterate. And so, 
the ELRV program is a very important program as it'll be really the first from the ground up purpose-built uh, all electric vehicle. And if you look at GM's, you know, GM's investment in similar vehicles, you use the, you know, the, the analogous situation would be the, the ISV, the infantry squad vehicle is 90% our award-winning Chevy Colorado ZR2. We had a great starting point with a world-class vehicle that we then adaptively engineered to meet the defense requirement. Similarly, you look at a vehicle like the Hummer EV, you know, the thousand horsepower, all electric super truck that's entering into, uh, into GM, GMC dealerships uh, as we speak. And it's an amazing vehicle. So what a platform to start from to help take the DOD another big step in the right direction towards a, a more electrified uh, uh, fleet. And, and so we're really excited about all that, Doggo. Let me um, let me ask you a, an investment um, question. Obviously, General Motors is a commercial company. You guys are focused on a massive market in what is increasingly becoming sort of an existential uh, electrification battle uh, against Ford, against Tesla, Toyota, Volkswagen, uh, uh, Stellantis, right? I mean, all Mercedes-Benz, all of these companies are, are really turning up uh, the competitive pressure. Your charge is to self-finance your, your growth. Will you be able to get the corporate resources you need to keep growing at a time when the corporation itself is is really gearing up for what is a a giant commercial battle for the future of electrification. Well, the the and it's a it's a great point, but I think that gets back to the 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 true benefit of General Motors Defense is we don't necessarily need to go in and 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 battle for investment focus and investment dollars the investment that the company is making in this commercial technology is exactly what we will leverage to bring value into the, into the defense and government marketplace. So again, like I said, the, the company has invested heavily in building the Hummer EV, which is the example I, I, I just used. And that vehicle, you know, the, the electrification of that vehicle using our Ultium and Ultium 2 uh, uh, power capability will be directly applicable to the vehicles that we propose to build for the Army under the ELRV. So I think we will get the investment backing because my goal is to stay completely aligned with the direction that General Motors is going in and with the technology investment. And and how do I smartly adapt that to bring value and ultimately to deliver a safer, better vehicle to the warfighter? That's what I'm doing every day. And, and obviously, we should point out, right, that that vehicle is going to be key in terms of how the Army thinks about the future, right? Because you're a former soldier and a West Pointer. From your standpoint, there are enormous benefits to that, but there are also challenges, right? Fuel is a very portable source of power, and the United States Army operates the largest vehicle fleet, certainly in the nation and one of the largest in the world. How does the customer need to be thinking about this challenge from the standpoint of a, of a soldier? Well, you know, Vaga, one of the things that's incredibly important is that we listen and learn. And I've, I've learned that over 30 years between my time in uniform and, and now um, the, the time that I've been in industry. It's, it's so incredibly important to listen and learn. And when I go to Fort Benning and sit with some of our, you know, our great soldiers who, uh, who perform a very dangerous and, and difficult job, 
uh, every time I, I listen to him, I learn something different, like I did when I was in uniform. I, I mean, there's so much benefit in the soldier touch point. So I think part of what we're doing, again, in my, in, in my goal of translating um, commercial technology and innovation to benefit the warfighter, it's it's to do that at a at a speed that allows me to to harness the technology investment that General Motors is making, and then quickly adapt that for use by the warfighter at the you know a, a bit of an overused term, but the speed of relevance I think still matters. The traditional defense timeline of a of a five to ten year, um, in some cases, in best case procurement cycle almost ensures with the speed that new technology is being developed that was fielded to the warfighter will at the very best be suboptimal and in some cases is outmoded, outdated, uh, and no longer relevant. So we have to think differently as a government industry team about how we harness technology today to get it in the hands of the warfighters so that they can perform their dangerous mission with the best technology available. We, we have a couple of minutes left before you, you've, you've got to go. And I want to add, pull on that uh, speed and innovation uh, theme, right? I mean, that's the name of the game right now. We've heard from senior leaders that we're out of time and we have to change. The question is, of course, innovating at speed and scale for a military and a, and a heritage industry that's moved perhaps a little bit slowly. You come from that uh, heritage uh, industry. And there are contracts that are seen as signals that the department is thinking differently about stuff, right? The ISV, I'm sorry, I called it IFV earlier. The ISV is one of those examples. Uh, the uh, Constellation class frigate is another example. Uh, um, and and speed innovation at, and speed and innovation at scale is something that you guys are proud of being able to do. What's the difference in approach you're seeing from General Motors than you did at Raytheon, which is a company that in its own right has a reputation for being uh, quick when it needs to be quick, especially under your, your former CEO and your, your friend, Bill Swanson. Yeah, so um, such an important theme and topic, Bago. I mean, the reason why I am at General Motors Defense now, and, and believe me, Raytheon was a, was a tremendous company. And over 14 years, I, I met some amazing people and did some amazing things with, with, with incredibly gifted people. And, and it was also a company that cared about, you know, deeply about the needs of the warfighter, like, like all of our defense industry does. Well, what brought me to, to GM Defense was when I learned about the infantry squad vehicle development process, and I, and I learned that we delivered our first vehicles 120 days after contract award. That they weren't prototypes, they weren't demo vehicles, they weren't test assets to be consumed in test. They were production ready vehicles 120 days. That is speed that is so un unusual in the defense industry. That's what got me very interested. And then we look at, as I said earlier, our ability to stand up a new manufacturing facility that can leverage all the scale that builds six million vehicles a year in General Motors down to a production facility that can that can deliver the same quality and the same uh, uh, attention to detail and focus in building eight to 14 to maybe 20 vehicles a month. So the ability to kind of translate that that goodness into, you know, the, the you know, a, a lower rate production is just is just fascinating to me. I think speed and agility is everything as we go forward. 
and and of course the the world is in the world is clearly not getting any safer and the and the threats that we face are threats that have tremendous backing and tremendous technical capability. So I think one of the biggest things we can do, again, as a government industry team, is to think differently about the process that we use to field defense capability. And, and in some cases, there may, not, there may not be a commercial analog to, to speed the process, and we might have to continue to follow a process similar to what we do today. But, but for sure, that needs to, to be more efficient as well. But in the case where we're building vehicles where there's a commercial analogous capability to, to so what I'm what I'm doing now is to get ahead of this process where we go out and work requirements and wait for the RFP and respond to the RFP and get into a EMD program and down select and compete against multiples and the, the, the types of things that take us decades. So in the case of electric vehicles, we're building some of them. We're gonna, we're gonna listen to warfighters, we're gonna learn what they need, and we're gonna build demo capability. We're gonna get them out there for, for soldier and warfighter touch points. We're gonna learn from it, we're gonna adapt and then bring back a capability well ahead of that whole process. And if we can do that to speed technology into the hands of the warfighter, then I've been successful on my mission. So I think that's, that's a really important aspect of, of what we're doing here at GM Defense. Last 15 second follow-up, is this approach applicable to other market areas? You guys are a vehicle maker, but can you see this approach applying to other market segments uh, as well, which is a question that a lot of my uh, corporate strategy friends have been asking me. And so that's why I'm asking you. Yeah, absolutely, Bago. I think the, the technology that exists today and where we are going in General Motors. So look at General Motors is now exploring the space outside of the traditional vehicle. I mean, yesterday at our investor day, one of the big themes was we're no longer just a car company. We're a platform company. We think about the vehicle as a platform to insert technology to connect people uh, and, and to pioneer innovative new solutions. This is, this is what we're doing. So at GM Defense, I'm just thrilled that I have that type of uh, support from our leadership to do the same thing. We're looking at you know UAS companies who need the, you know, the world's best battery electrification, where the, the huge investment we're making in battery power translates directly to companies that are flying small UAVs to companies that are flying big airplanes. We're working on the General Motors side with companies that are, that are you know, powering all manner of vehicles, whether they're air, land, sea, subsea. That's the space we're in now. And my ability to close the gap between, you know, air, ground, sea, subsea, and space is, uh, is, uh, is what I'm focused on in terms of how we use our technology to, to, you know, to, to fuel this transformation that's underway. It's all really excited, and I, I couldn't be happier to be where I am doing, doing what I am today. Are, are folks visiting your Charlotte facility from other DoD programs to sort of see how things can be done differently? Is that becoming kind of a, are you having some traffic through there? Yeah, so we've we've definitely piqued the interest of our defense and government industry uh, officials who are interested in looking at how to do things differently. So whether it's visiting our Charlotte facility, where we've been able to translate that commercial manufacturing, you know, world class commercial manufacturing down to low volume, or if it's coming to one of our biggest facilities, I have you know I have our leadership, our military leadership interested in how to do things differently. To me, that's an, that's an exceptionally good sign 
And uh, anytime someone wants to go and let me show off the things that we do in General Motors or General Motors Defense, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Steve, honor and pleasure having you on the program. Really, really appreciate it. I know how busy you are. Uh, have a great AUSA and looking forward to connecting again soon. Thanks so much. Hey, Vago, thanks so much and look forward to, uh, to folks coming to our booth here. We're really excited about it. Thanks again. And now a word from our sponsors, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And joining us now is retired United States Army Major General John Ferrari. Uh, he is uh, with uh, the American Enterprise Institute and his last job in the United States Army before retiring was uh, Program Analysis Chief uh, for the Army. Uh, so sir, you're used to sifting through large amounts of information for gold nuggets. Uh, this is the first day of the uh, AUSA show. Uh, what was some of the messages? messages that you heard, and especially the feedback down on the show floor where you were talking to uh, your former colleagues as, as well as industry and other folks on, on what the takeaways were from this first day of AUSA. Yeah, thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, this is a, uh, a great time to get together with everybody. I think there are three things that stood out to me. So the first is if you walk the floor, you'll see a number of international uh, booths and they're worried about Buy America and what that means for them. And is the American military going to turn inward and essentially cut them off. Uh, the second is there's a fair number of small businesses down there uh, and the Army really hasn't figured out yet how to solve that Death Valley uh, where programs die for small businesses. So they're worried. They put a lot of effort in and they're worried about that. And then the third thing is from the big companies that are out there uh, is where, where, where's the money, right? So right. the continuing resolution and the possibility of a full year CR this year is uh, scary. Uh, and then also what happens, you know, to the 30 programs if the budget gets squeezed as many as expected in 2023. Um, you know, we heard a little bit about that where uh, the secretary talked about, look, we are, re you know, relooking to see what the budgetary outlook does look like for the service. I think that there is a, a lot of confidence that there will be probably more money, but we'll obviously have to see what happens uh, with the budget negotiations and, and raising the debt limit. From your standpoint, one of the key focus elements here was supposed to be uh, more discussion about the Pacific and the U.S. Army role in it. Um, this is something that smart soldiers uh, have been talking about for some time is what the, you know, I remember the late uh, great General Odierno talking about the Army's central role in the Pacific and, and making that case. And yet it doesn't seem as though we've coalesced into a strategy. Uh, I know that that's something you've been paying a little bit of attention to as well. What does the Army have to do to get to where it needs to be? Because ultimately there, there is a little bit of frustration that perhaps the service is not moving fast enough in order to try to get to that uh, future. Um, or, or where it needs to be from a Pacific standpoint? Well, the Army's, you know, been in this spot where, where it's had a hard time trying to explain what it's doing in the Pacific in its strategy, mainly because, you know, the way the military set up, the Army really shouldn't have a strategy. It should fit into the PACOM commander strategy. And we know with the current administration, Deputy Secretary, Secretary of the Army, they had a vision for the way the Pacific was going to be fought in the, you know, the, the Obama administration, and the Army had a very small role in that. And so the Army's wrestling with how to, how to communicate and, and talk about that. Uh, and so far to date, it's been very, you know, I don't think uh, that message has gotten through or the Army is nested with PACOM because when PACOM commander stands up, the first thing out of his mouth is not, hey, I need more Army. Um, and is this, um, is this more of a uh, PACOM and a Lung Aquilino question or is this as much a question for the Secretary and the Chief uh, to, to not just sell a, a better uh, uh, message, 
but also to be able to deliver and think through some of the subordinate elements and challenges of this, right? I mean, from an Army standpoint, it has a sense of its centrality in these operations, and perhaps it might not be as central, even if it's absolutely critical in terms of the role it provides, or roles, whether soft missile defense or anything else. It is, and as the Army lays out its modernization plan, right, the, the, it's got a, a good story and narrative with PACOM and is nested on the long-range fires, uh, hypersonics. When you start getting command helicopters and armored vehicles, the PACOM commander doesn't, that doesn't fit into the strategy. So then you have to ask the question, is the Army modernization strategy aligned with the PACOM commander strategy? Or is it bifurcated because you still have the Russia threat? And the Army can't really walk away from that Russia threat, and nor should it be embarrassed by Russia and having to deal with Europe and, and, and the Middle East. And so that's the Army's kind of caught between all three of those theaters. Um, and, uh, and yet the Army would say, um, as, as you're familiar with, right, because of the degree of risk associated with this and because we have to be a Russia force and we have to be an Asia force and an Africa force and a counterinsurgency force, that it's very, very hard for us to necessarily pick. And so the modernization strategy is what it is for better foundational systems than even George Washington would recognize if he was reincarnated today. From your standpoint, do you think that the Army modernization strategy is on the right track from a writ large standpoint? Or is it time, you think, for the Army to be taking a little bit more risk and sort of pointing its capabilities in, in, in firmer directions? Yeah, so I believe that uh, across all the services, a modernization strategy isn't building a better platform of something you have, whether it's a, a new bomber, a new helicopter, a new aircraft carrier. Uh, I think the recent resignation of the Air Force Chief Software Officer should be a, 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 a shot across the bow to all the services, the Army in particular, uh, even more so than the Air Force, and the centrality of software, autonomous systems, uh, if you go down on the floor, you see a lot of autonomous systems that can displace a lot of the systems they have today. Right now, the Army modernization strategy is buying a lot of better platforms than it has today and calling it modernization. That may not be the pivot that we're looking for in both Europe that can transcend all of those theaters. And uh, 30 uh, seconds, um, you mentioned uh, Buy American. Uh, the administration is is saying that, look, we're, we're not going to be closing these markets, but that we want to onshore capability. Do you think that that's just a euphemism for closing markets because soldiers benefited in Iraq and Afghanistan from very, very good allies from our, uh, ideas from our allies and partners? Is that a concern that you have? Well, it is a concern. It's a domestic message, but the, you know, the U.S. military is not a big enough market maker in any of these markets to play a difference, but all the allied militaries are, and you're going to have to have a lot of those capabilities. If your strategy is uh, to be with and for allies, it can't be just, hey, send us your troops and increase your spending, but we're not going to come together and, and share in the responsibility for the technology and the production, right? You go down on the floor, you see all of them down there, uh, right? They, they, they've got to have a piece in the game also. Sir, thanks very much. Always a pleasure having you on and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you very much.